Good morning, Go Church. How y'all doing? That's always a little bit of a dangerous question to ask, you know, when it starts turning into the fall weather and we start getting these gray skies, because I know how you're feeling, and you're feeling like, whew, all right, I'm trying to get going, I'm trying to get going. So, <laughs> I'm glad you're doing good. Hey, it is such an honor to be able to preach the Word of God with you this morning. Um, once again, it's, it's an absolute privilege. And I am looking forward to sharing with you what I believe the Lord has laid on my heart this morning, uh, because today we're actually going to be starting a, a three-part series um, through the book of Galatians, chapters 3 through 5. Now, I do have to admit that this is actually the first series I've ever preached, and this sucker's going to be a three-parter. So I don't know if that means I, I can call it a trilogy or if that's okay with you, but <laughs> unfortunately, though, we won't be able to knock this, this, uh, this thing out in three consecutive Sundays, one right after the other. So we'll be taking more of a long-haul uh, approach uh, to the series. So just think Blockbuster instead of instant online streaming, and you get the idea. Remember the days of Blockbuster, right? Those were, those were good days. That said, today we'll be covering part one of a larger series I'm calling I Got Saved. Now what? And I, I look forward to covering parts two and, and three with you in the future. Now, most of you know at least one person, one believer in your life that you, know, you really look up to, someone who inspires you to be better, someone who seems to be at least becoming more like Christ every single day. But maybe you wonder how they got where they are. You're just kind of like, wow, you know, what happened? Um, and, and maybe you just kind of wish that somebody would hand you a manual Almost um, a manual that says uh, how to be sanctified, you know, 101 steps or something like that. Um, but if you don't know what sanctification is, it's basically a big fat word that, refer, that refers to uh, the portion of our lives after we've trusted in Christ and before he has taken us home. Sanctification is about discipleship. It's about becoming more like Jesus after you've trusted in him as your savior. And it's really what the series is going to be all about. The thing is, though, sanctification is a complicated process, and just like parenting, there really is not a how-to manual for any one person on what to do. And I mean, maybe you got saved yesterday, maybe you got saved 50 years ago, but the road to becoming a disciple and, and being sanctified to be more like Christ takes intentionality. I mean, none of us are in the same place in our walk, but I would argue that other than baptism, which is the first step of discipleship, Grasping a true understanding of your identity in Christ may be one of the most important steps you could ever take in your walk with Jesus. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Now, before we dive right into Scripture, I do want to explain that I will be handling this text a little bit differently than usual because we're actually skipping a little portion in the middle and we're saving it for later in the series. Unfortunately, you know, Paul, if you read much of Paul, he kind of goes from one subject to the next subject and kind of hops around. So I got to work with Paul here, guys. So we're skipping this section for, for today, but we'll get back to it. With that understanding, let's go ahead and jump in, starting with Galatians 3, 22 through 23, and read what the Word of God says. Starting in verse 22, chapter 3, Galatians. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. Now I say, and this is jumping ahead to, to chapter 4, verse 1. I'm sorry. Uh, chapter 4, verse 4. Verse 4. It says, 
When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then God has made you an heir. Now, after reading that, the first thing I really want to explain uh, before we do anything else today is why understanding your identity in Christ will help you grow in your walk with him. There's a connection there. There's a relationship. So I'll start by saying this. What you believe about yourself will shape how you live. If someone thinks that they're an outcast, they'll probably live as an outcast. If someone thinks they aren't unique or they aren't loved for who they are, well, they'll probably do some things to try and get that attention, get that recognition. Um, If someone thinks they're a terrible person, well, they'll probably at some point give themselves an excuse to do a terrible thing. The two go hand in hand. Our actions ultimately result from the truths or lies that we've come to believe about ourselves. So as we study this passage in Galatians this morning, we will uncover three ways in which changing our thinking can change our walk. First, stop thinking like a prisoner. Second, remember your sonship. And third, live as an heir. Now, before we dig right into chapter three today, I'd like to briefly explain what you know, led Paul up to this point in his letter. Because especially as we start a new series, it's really good for our perspective to focus on the context of what we're reading. So when it comes to authorship and audience, chapter one, verse one of the book of Galatians, and really verse two, very plainly tell us that this book was written by Paul to the churches of Galatia. Now, something you may not have noticed is that these churches were largely planted by Paul and his companions on on his first missionary journey as recorded in the book of Acts. When you see towns and cities and you're reading through the book of Acts and you see um, words like Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, right? These are just just actually locations within the larger region of Galatia. So understand that this was not just to one church but it was widespread throughout many congregations in Galatia. Now, it's important also to note that there was a big problem with false teaching in these churches at the time that Paul wrote this letter. The particular false teachers that had infiltrated the church were known as the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers taught that circumcision and a strict adherence to the Mosaic law were absolutely 100% required for salvation. So Paul, who had preached the gospel earnestly, the true gospel of grace, to the Galatian church was understandably upset about that. And that's, that's kind of the whole reason why the entire book of Galatians was written. And Paul actually wrote a brilliant argument in response to that heresy throughout the book. Amazingly, God used all of this to preserve some of the deepest doctrinal truths that we know today in Scripture. Now, zooming in a little closer, in chapters 1 and 2, Paul sternly warns the churches against the false gospel of the Judaizers and argues that the gospel is, a matter, is not a matter of following the law, but receiving grace by faith in Christ alone. But by chapter 3, Paul turns a corner in his writing as he begins to describe the identity of a true believer, and that's where we find our text for this morning. Now, today, we probably don't have a problem with thinking that circumcision is required for salvation. I don't think that's kind of a mainline thought, at least I'm, I'm hoping not. <laughs> but sometimes the way we think about ourselves in relation to God moves us right back into that prison cell that he got us out of. But the thing is, oftentimes when we do that, 
We don't know we're doing it. And that's where Galatians 3, 22 through 23 really comes in hand. Because it reminds us of what this mindset of a prisoner is in a way that we can identify and eradicate within ourselves. That said, let's go back to the text, starting in Galatians chapter 3, with verses 22 and 23, Paul writes, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power, so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The bottom line that we need to understand from this text is that without Christ, we are prisoners under the law to sin. Given that reality, the question that we need to ask, there's actually two questions, is number one, what does it mean to be under the law? And number two, why are those under the law held prisoner to sin? To answer the first question in a nutshell, to be under the law is to live under the burden and expectation of keeping God's law entirely to perfection. It is the lifelong struggle of trying to be good enough to please God. As for the second question, there's a threefold answer, and that's really where we're going to camp out today. Those under the law are held prisoner to sin because, first, the law holds us accountable for sin. Second, the law cannot save us from sin. And third, the law is unattainable. As we work through each one of these answers, we will also uncover three different mentalities of a prisoner that can make their way into our mindset as Christians if we aren't careful. So here we go. First off, those under the law are held prisoner to sin because the law convicts us of sin. And one of the clearest passages that communicates this point is in Romans 7, 7 through 8, which says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. So the main idea of this passage is that without the law, there really is no written standard for right and wrong. But because there is a law, we have no excuse for our sin. For you teenagers out there, you might get this more than you realize. If you go out you know, at late at night to hang out with your friends and your parents don't say anything about when to be back, well, you're probably not going to feel that bad about getting back pretty late. But if your parents tell you exactly when they want you back and you don't get back by then, then you're probably going to feel some level of guilt if you're a good kid um, because, you know, the law has been laid out. The standard has been communicated and you've trespassed that uh, standard. And so in the same way, God's law reveals his standards to all of us so that everyone is without excuse. So those under the law are held prisoner to sin because the law convicts us of sin. And that means to live under the law is to be guilty of breaking the law, which reveals the first mentality of a prisoner, which is that prisoners are guilty. However, if you are a believer, then that shouldn't describe you. Romans 6.14 says, for all, for, I'm sorry, for sin shall not be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. The problem is, there are probably a lot of you in this room that actually needed that reminder because we struggle not to return to that old way of thinking about ourselves that we've been freed from in Christ. That said, how have you been doing lately? Are you constantly feeling guilty for something you did, something you said? Do you feel as though you just can't be good enough? How are you doing with 
guilt. Now, I don't want anybody to come away from this with the wrong idea. There is a difference between conviction and guilt. Conviction is something the Holy Spirit does in your life as a believer. It's the inner heartfelt knowledge that something you did wasn't right or something you said and that you need to make a change. You need to, you need to repent. But guilt is something different. While conviction drives you forward into making positive changes, guilt makes you wallow in your mistakes. It just makes you stay right there. In fact, true guilt only produces more and more sin because it's actually a terrible motivator. But what if you're stuck in cycles of guilt right now and you're a believer? What's the remedy for you? Well, we'll get to that soon. But for now, just realize that if God has truly saved you, then he wants you to stop living in cycles of guilt. He wants you to stop living like a prisoner. Now, the second reason that those under the law are also held prisoner to sin is because the law cannot save anyone. Galatians 2.16 says that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And then again, in Galatians 3.11, Paul writes, Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law. Now, just in case anyone is missing the point, to be justified by God is to be saved by Christ. So what it boils down to is the fact that the law has never, ever had the ability to save a single soul from sin. From the moment that it was put into effect, it was never created to make a right relationship between God and man. In this way, the law holds us prisoner to sin because it is unable to free us from its shackles. To be bound by the law is to be in slavery to sin, and to be in slavery to sin is to be at enmity with God. And that leads us to the second mentality of a prisoner, which is that prisoners aren't at peace with God. As believers... We know we are no longer enemies of the Lord, but we sometimes still struggle to believe that he really loves us. So ask yourself this morning, how is my relationship with Jesus? Do I find myself looking over my shoulder to make sure God won't zap me with lightning? Or do I feel as if God is distant and uncaring in my life? If your answer to any one of those questions is in any way a yes, then I need to tell you, that you're still thinking like a prisoner because prisoners aren't at peace with God. The third reason that those under the law are held prisoner to sin is that the law is unattainable. Twelve verses before our passage today, Paul wrote in Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, Everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. So in other words, you can either follow all of God's law to perfection without the slightest hint of mistake, or you can be a lawbreaker. Look, the reality is that even if the law was somehow designed to save us from sin, which it isn't, we still couldn't help but become lawbreakers anyway. With that understanding, there's really no point in fighting against sin if you're under the law. Because no matter what you do, you can't undo your past wrongs. I mean, if the law is the standard and you've already broken it before, then what's the point of trying again? And that very truth reveals the third and final mentality of a prisoner, which is that prisoners give up. If you know Christ, then you know that there is always a place for repentance. There is always a place for turning around in your life. But how well do you really believe that this morning in your heart? What if this prisoner mentality has made its way into your thinking 
Do you find yourself stuck in an addiction that you just can't get free of? Do you feel as if there's just no point in trying anymore? Are you giving up? If you are, then let me remind you that God is calling you to get up and try again. Because those who belong to Christ don't have to give up. In summary, the reality is that prisoners to sin are under the law and they're guilty. They're, they aren't at peace with God and they have no choice but to give up. But if you've been saved by the blood of Jesus, then you aren't a prisoner anymore. You are a child of God. And that leads us to the second point this morning, which is to remember your sonship. Now, if you think I said sonship, number one, lunch is coming soon. And number two, I also love sonships, and I, all, like, I fool myself into thinking that they're very healthy. I don't know if you do this. Maybe I'm the only one. But then I look at the nutrition facts on the back, and I'm like, oh, these are not healthy. I mean, if you're eating like a Cheeto, then you know. You know what you're doing. You know full well what you're doing. But with the sonship, you're like, you're kind of tricking yourself there. You're kind of fooling yourself. Like, this is a pretty good chip. It's pretty healthy, but it, it's not. Anyway, I should probably get back to the sermon. Uh, so back to the point. God wants you to remember your sonship. Let's go ahead and read the next portion of our text today, starting in verse 4 of chapter 4 and ending in verse 6. Paul writes, When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The reality we need to understand is that if we have placed faith, our faith in Jesus Christ, then we have been redeemed. And since we have been redeemed, we have received adoption as sons. Sons of who? Sons of God. Now, before we go any further, I do want to clear up any confusion and say that the word son here is inclusive of females as well as is often the case. We are talking about sons and daughters. Literally three verses before this section, the word of God says that we are all one in Jesus Christ and that there is no longer Jew or Gentile or male or female. And so for Paul to only be talking about males here would be contradictory and out of context to his previous statement. That said, I am going to stick with the word son just like Paul did here for the sake of simplicity but just know that I'm talking about both sons and daughters, as Paul was. Back to the point, the first way we can remember our sonship is to understand that sons are redeemed. To redeem is to buy something back that you have already owned. But in the context of our passage today, we aren't talking about redeeming something, but someone. Imagine a man named Fred and his foster child. As the child enters into his teenage years, he starts making choices that Fred doesn't approve of. But at first, it's nothing too harmful. He sneaks out at night, but he's always home in the morning, and for the most part, he does what he's told when Fred's around. But one day, the boy doesn't come home. And Fred learns that his foster child has been hanging out with some very bad people. As it turns out, one of the people he's been spending so much time with late at night is a convicted felon in multiple states... And now this criminal has taken the boy hostage and plans to sell him into slavery. Fred learns of the entire plan from a whistleblower and even gets to the boy's location. But he knows that any kind of rescue attempt would be futile and probably fatal for, for both he and the boy. And so he does the only thing he can do. He pretends to be a buyer. As Fred enters the highly secure facility, he finds his boy's seller and asks for a price. 
Just then, another buyer enters the room, and they begin a bidding war. After a long back and forth, finally, after Fred has done all he can think to do, he offers all he has to buy the foster child back. The other buyer stops to think about it, but then ultimately turns the other way. After the father had spent everything on someone he already had, he bought the boy back, and the two were reunited again. But that's when Fred did something the boy didn't expect him to do. He began gathering all his items, everything he had, his cars, his campers, his boats, uh, whatever he had, anything he could touch, and he began to sell everything. And within days, the boy was really curious about what was going on, so he had to ask Fred, you already spent all you had to get me back. Why are you selling all of your things now? With tears in his eyes, Fred handed him a packet of legal documents and told him, because I'm going to need the money to pay for this. And as the boy began to look through the papers, he realized that one of them said in bold letters at the, at the top, report of adoption. What I want you to know is that if you have placed your faith in Jesus, then that's exactly what God the Father has done with you. He has redeemed you. When you were a prisoner to sin, he bought you back. And then he adopted you as his son. Listen, to be a prisoner is to be guilty, but to be a son is to be redeemed. If you really believe that the Son of God paid the highest price to buy you back and forgive your sin, then guilt has no place in your life anymore. Again, conviction does have a place in your life. Repentance does. Confection has a place in your life, but not guilt. Sons are redeemed. The second way you can remember your sonship is to understand the fact that sons have peace with the father. Prisoners don't, but sons do. Let's review what our text says in verse 6. It says, And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is a reference to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within every believer. If you listen to sermons online or read books, then you probably already have an idea. You might know that the word Abba in Hebrew is a very special word for the word Father. But what I want to draw your attention to is uh, the context of where exactly this word is used. According to this verse, when we become sons of God and he saves us, God places his Holy Spirit into our hearts and from within us, the Holy Spirit connects us deeply with God by crying Abba, Father, in an expression of worship, adoration, and love. There's a lot of things that I could say about that this morning. But there's one thing that's absolutely obvious. Sons have peace with the Father. Here's my point. If you're wondering if you're okay with God, then you're forgetting your sonship. He doesn't see you as one who deserves his wrath, but as the son he loves. Remember, sons have peace with the Father, and that peace isn't something you earn. It was something that was given to you. The third way you can remember your sonship is to understand the fact that sons are sealed. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says this, He, which is God, has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. In context, this down payment is about eternity. And the amazing truth here is that if you are a son, God will never give up on you. And if God never gives up on you, then you never need to give up on God. If you're a believer today, then let me remind you that it's never too late to get your act together. 
Let God's unwavering faithfulness be your motivation to make the change that you know you need to make. I encourage you to make a new commitment today. If you've been struggling with addiction or sin in your life, repent. Turn around and start making a real effort because you belong to the Father. And there's no changing that. So realize that God is simply waiting for you to get back up on your feet. Because sons are sealed. If you've already found salvation in Jesus, then God wants you to stop thinking like a prisoner. He wants you to remember your sonship. And lastly, he wants you to live as an heir. Let's turn to our passage one last time and read the final verse. Paul writes in verse 7, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. The best way to understand what Paul means by the word heir here is actually to go back and read Galatians 3.29. And here's what Galatians 3.29 says. It says, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So if we want to understand what it means to be an heir, then we need to answer two questions. Number one, how are we descendants of Abraham? And number two, what is the promise? As for the first question, the book of Galatians is clear that we are descendants of Abraham by faith. That is, we are part of Abraham's family because we have trusted in Christ as our Savior. As for the promise, Paul is primarily referring back to the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. But he was also speaking about all the promises that God made to his people. One reason we can surmise that is because in Galatians 3.16, Paul included a statement about the promises, plural, of God within the context of the one promise that he made to Abraham. So he's really talking about everything at once here, more specifically about that Genesis 12 calling, but also all the promises of God. And that leads us to the first way that we can live as heirs, which is to inherit the family promises. The Old Testament of the Bible is full of the promises of God, but most of them were made to the nation of Israel. However, because we are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise, we can share in those promises too. Is it working now? All right, popcorn. But honestly, I don't really know if you really understand, and I really understand, the gravity of that statement. So let me remind you of some of the actual promises that God made in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 31.8. Is it the Lord? It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Isaiah 43.1-3. But now the Lord... Thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Psalm 139, 13-14. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Those are just three passages among many that can provide overwhelming comfort and security to every believer sitting in this room only because we are heirs and Abraham's family. I think that's important for us to realize because I know that there are several of you here we're going through some really hard things, going through some really hard times. And I know it's easier 
said than done. But I want to encourage you to just try to remember that because you've inherited the promises of God, there's a list of things that you can always count on no matter what you're going through. You can always count on the fact that God is with you. You can always trust in the fact that God knew what he was doing when he designed you, when he created you. You can always know that God loves you personally. Heirs inherit the family promises, but it is up to you to remember what they are. Now that we've talked about the promises of God in general, let's jump back into the specific promise that Paul was primarily referring to in Galatians 4, 7, which is in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Let's go ahead and read it now. God said these words to Abram. Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who mistreats you with contempt, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. So verse 1 of that passage tells us that the second way to live as an heir is to inherit the family land. In Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, we get a little more insight into what that really means. So let's go ahead and read that this morning, starting in verse 8. Hebrews 11, verse 8 through 10. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. What that means is that by his faith, Abraham was looking for more than an earthly home. He was looking for a heavenly one. Church, the promised land that we are destined to inherit is the eternal kingdom of God. It's heaven. Abraham was so focused on God that he was content to live in tents as long as God was calling him. Is that our attitude this morning? I have a feeling we could all do better when it comes to our mindset about inheriting the family land because that's exactly what we are called to do as heirs. And that should excite us. The hard part, though, about applying this in the present is that it's really all about the future. <laughs> we aren't in the promised land yet. We're like Abraham, wandering around in tents. So really, this is more about priorities. Do you realize how easy it would have been for Abraham to tell God, never mind? That would have been a short ending on the Bible. We got Genesis. Okay, that's it. Just Genesis. Abraham said no. I guess it'd be easier to study that way, but... I'm thankful he said yes. The Bible tells us he was a wealthy man. He had everything he wanted, and yet he got up and left. And for what? For a land that God would show him. For a city whose architect and builder was God. Would you be so willing to sacrifice everything like Abraham on the basis of God's promised inheritance that you haven't even received yet? Hebrews 12.1 says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. The joy of heaven. You can endure whatever cross God has called you to bear too. But only when you look ahead, as Jesus did. Remember, heirs inherit the family land. Heirs not only inherit the family promises and the family land, but they also inherit the family call. 
The word inheritance can actually refer to more than things, possessions, property. It can actually also have to do with legacy, kind of carrying on the family name, um, the family call in this case. And that's really uh, exactly what we see here. As heirs in Abraham's family of faith, we inherit his call. In fact, the second arrow of our church vision graphic is called blessing, and it comes directly from this verse of Scripture. So we really own this as a church, but how have you been doing with this personally in your life? When's the last time you went out of your way to bless someone else? Maybe God has given you a nice house, but is your mindset to bless others with it or to keep it all to yourself? Maybe God has given you a special gift, a special talent, something that you can do for his glory, but is your mindset to bless others or to make much of yourself? And of course, the ultimate application here is to share the gospel with others. It's the ultimate way that we can bless the whole earth. And that's really, really, really what this passage is all about. And we fulfill that blessing in Christ in sharing his gospel. But remember, God has blessed us so that we can bless others. If you know Jesus, you are an heir according to the promise. And that means God wants you to inherit the family call. In conclusion... Today, we have learned that if you are a believer, then God wants you to stop thinking like a prisoner to sin. He wants you to remember your sonship, and he wants you to live as an heir in his family. And when you truly learn to see yourself as a son, to see yourself as an heir, it will have a profound impact on your own journey to become more like Christ. But what if you're here today? And you're not a believer. Maybe you're listening and you're kind of like, well, I'm kind of, the first part kind of describes me. No, really, it does. Like, I'm not struggling with thinking about that. I really am under the law. And that's what you're thinking. I really am a prisoner to sin. Well, I'm glad you're here. And I know I've made a lot of mentions to faith in Jesus, but what does that really mean? Because that's really the key to unlocking that door, to God unlocking your shackles, to God getting you out of that prison cell. Um... And so faith in Jesus is, is all about the fact that Jesus died on the cross for you. It's all about the fact that God gave himself up for you, came here in the form of a man and, and, and bled and died for your sin. He's the only one. His grace is the only thing that can free you. Not the law, not things that you can do. That's why we just finished talking about how the law is so insufficient. Trying to be good enough is so insufficient. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. You're done trying. You know you can't do it. If that's you, I'm going to pray with you right now. Lord, I pray the person, for the person in this room, Lord, for the people that, that you might be calling to yourself. Lord, it's not a matter of mentality for some. It's a matter of where their internal destiny is at. They're, they, they're not believers yet. They haven't placed their faith in you. Lord, I pray for those who have not done that yet. Help them do so. Help them say, I believe. Lord, help them depend on you. Maybe they don't understand it all yet, but that's okay. Help them surrender in this moment to you and what you're doing and to say yes to Jesus. And Lord, for the rest of us here today, help us who are believers in you not to put on that old mindset again. Because we have been freed from sin. We're not under the law. Lord, help us to, to see ourselves as you see us. To see ourselves as sons. 
to see ourselves as heirs. Lord, members of your family. Lord, help us. Help us be more like you. And help, help us understand who you've made us to be so that we can walk it out in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.